Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books Network. I am your host, Ari Barbalat, and I'm honored to be in dialogue today with Dr. John Sears. Dr. Sears served as executive director of the Roosevelt Institute in Hyde Park, New York, and associate editor of the Eleanor Roosevelt Papers Project at George Washington University. He has taught at Tufts, Boston University, and Vassar College. We will be discussing his new book, Refuge Must Be Given, Eleanor Roosevelt, The Jewish Plight and the Founding of Israel, published in West Lafayette, Indiana by Purdue University Press 2021. John, it's an honor to be in dialogue with you today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Uh, To begin, please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? Were there any formative events in your life that stimulated the scholar you would later become? Well, I was born in Massachusetts. Um, Both of my parents were interested in history. Um, I lived, um, when I was four, we moved to New Orleans, Louisiana, where my father was teaching and would travel back and forth every summer to our summer place in Western Massachusetts. And we would stop places. Uh, The place that made the most impression on me was Jefferson's Monticello. Um, And that that stimulated my interest in American history and um, the sort of issues that uh, we raised. I became a great admirer of Jefferson. Um, And um, the town that, that we our summer place was in is Hawley, Massachusetts, which is uh, where my family settled in 1781. So uh, that made me very, very interested in history in itself. That uh, my father was very interested in the family history and the history of that town, um, and so I, I think I came to history very very naturally because of my parents' interest in it and because of the places that I lived and my connection to them. What inspired you to write this book? What do you hope readers will gain from it? Well, I, I was, um, after I left the Roosevelt Institute as executive director, I became associate editor of the Eleanor Roosevelt Public Papers. And we were working on the period 1940, uh, 45, um, from FDR's death until 1948. Um, which was the period in which uh, Eleanor Roosevelt served on the American delegation to the United Nations. Um, She chaired the Human Rights Commission that drafted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And she participated in the debate about the future of Palestine. And um, she became a a passionate defender of the the plan, the United Nations plan to divide Palestine into an Arab and a Jewish state. And um, that was a a proposal that the United States um, initially supported, but then when the Arabs resisted, um, the Truman administration started to uh, have second thoughts and proposed that when the British mandate ended in May of 48, that, the UN should establish a United Nations trusteeship to take over. And Eleanor was furious about that. 
uh, she felt it was just uh, like kicking the can down the road. It wouldn't solve the problem. And it was also would weaken the United Nations. Um, so she, she wrote to um, Truman and to Marshall, or Secretary of State George Marshall, protesting, saying that she would have to publicly disagree with the administration. Um, and that if that was a problem for the administration, she would resign from the American delegation. Um, Truman and Marshall knew that uh, publicly disagreeing would mean that she would write my day columns about it. She, she wrote a daily column that was widely syndicated. So she had a large national audience that she could reach uh, anytime she wished. And um, so they, they said, we don't want you to resign. Um, they tried to argue her out of her position, but she didn't change her mind. And she published two columns um, in which she said why she disagreed with, with, with the um, administration's position. And uh, so when I was associate editor of the Eleanor Roosevelt's papers, those documents were particularly interesting to me. And the fact that she could write to them, she was by that time in, in a, you know, a very highly respected figure in her own right. And um, Truman and Marshall had great respect for her. They, they answered her uh, in detail. And um, so those powerful letters that she wrote and the columns that she wrote made me think, well, you know, what is the origin of, the, of this, of her views about Palestine? And um, so that's what, I would say that's what inspired me to, to go back and look at um, the whole trajectory of her, the sort of evolution of her views about the Jews and about the crisis, the refugee crisis in the thirties, um, about the Holocaust, and finally, about um, about the future of Palestine. Eleanor Roosevelt grew up in an anti-Semitic culture. What made her change her views over time? Yes, she um, she didn't shed those views very rapidly. I would say, but in the nineteen twenties, when she became active politically. Uh, she was very active in the League of Women Voters, um, in other organizations, the Consumers League, um, the, the women's division of the Democratic Party. The women had just gotten the vote and they were beginning to organize the women, Democratic women, educate them as voters. Um, and many of the people she worked with were Jews. Were Jews were also active in these organizations and, and had leadership positions. Um, also in the labor movement, um, she joined the Women's Trade Union League, which was headed by Rose Schneiderman. And uh, she became friends with, with Rose Schneiderman. And so, um, and finally her, her, her best friend was Eleanor Morgenthau, 
um, who was married to Henry Morgenthau. And the, Henry and Eleanor Morgenthau lived uh, in the Hudson Valley. Um, Henry, like Franklin, was very interested in farming. And um, he served in, in, when FDR was governor, served in his administration in, 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 uh, in agriculture, and then became, um, when FDR became president, he became secretary of the treasury. Um, and Eleanor Morgenthau was very active in the League of Women Voters herself in the women's division of the Democratic Party. So they were partners in many of the causes that, um, that Eleanor worked for, uh, worked on. And um, so she not only became friends with Jews, but she became very uh, active partners with them in, in many activities. And one of the fr Jewish friends she made later in the 1930s was Justine Polier, who was the daughter of Rabbi Stephen Wise, who was one of the most important Jewish leaders in America. And um, she worked with Justine on, on refugee issues. Um, later, she worked with Justine on civil rights issues. Um, and Justine was, um, and her husband were both involved in the um, American Jewish Congress and also the World Jewish Congress. So Justine became a lifelong friend. And again, not just a friend, but a, but a colleague, a partner in, in Eleanor Roosevelt's um, political activities. And um, she once uh, said to, to Justine Pollier, she said, whenever I have, whenever I need help, with a uh, problem, political, social problem that I'm working on, the Jews are always the first to come forward. Um, so she she came to value Jews as as uh, people who had her same uh, sense of social responsibility and and sense of of citizenship of the need to be active. Um, citizens and, um, and try to improve the world. Um, so I, I think that, so her, her views changed over time. Um, but one of the interesting things that I talk about in the book is that she didn't shed the stereotypes of Jews entirely, even, even into the late 1930s, even while she was, um, campaigning against anti-Semitism. Um, she was a great supporter of the National Conference of Christians and Jews, which was formed in the, in the early 30s to combat anti-Semitism in the United States um, and um, included um, representatives from Protestant, Catholic, and Jewish, Jewish faiths. And uh, was very active in in throughout the country um, in trying to prevent in America what was happening in Germany. And they were trying to turn Americans in just the opposite direction. Um, and um, so 
at the same time that Eleanor Roosevelt was doing, working with them and trying to, to fight anti-Semitism, she still expressed these stereotypes and, and she believed, um, she believed that it would be better for Jews to spread themselves more thinly uh, uh, among the professions like medicine and law, that, where they were concentrated, uh, and it would be better for them to spread out through the country, not to be so concentrated in particular cities. Um, and you know, we, today we would regard those positions, those attitudes as um, anti-Semitic. She saw them and other people at the time saw them as ways of preventing anti-Semitism, of reducing uh, prejudice against Jews uh, by making them less prominent. Uh, so, um, and there were Jews who, who shared the same views um, I came across correspondence between the leaders of the Jewish uh, men's, you know, the Jewish fraternity, the National Jewish Fraternity, because the Jews were not allowed to be members of, of other fraternities um, that allowed Catholics and Protestants, but excluded Jews. And so the Jews had their own national fraternity and I came across this correspondence between the leaders talking about how they, they thought that they should begin to educate their, encourage the members of the fraternity to, to choose different prof professions, to spread themselves out more among the professions, specifically in order to, to prevent what had happened in Germany. There was this fear, natural fear that what, what was happening in Germany might spread to other countries, including the United States. And um, uh, so this was this idea of, of, of sort of, of reducing the prominence of Jews was pretty, uh, pretty common among people who were, who were concerned about anti-Semitism. So it, it's, it's, it's sort of very different from, the way we look at things today. But um, I think I, I, I thought of this, you know, recently when racism has begun, you know, it's become such a, uh, a divisive issue today. It's such a, um, a difficult issue that, um, and we're reminded, I think that when Obama was elected, we thought, well, we're, we've entered a new era. We've put this behind us. Uh, and clearly we ha haven't put it behind us and it's, you know, it's deeply rooted in our culture. And I think that, um, that even people, um, you know, people like myself who are, who are anti-racist and um, support uh, the fight against racism may still carry with us these stereotypes of African Americans that that so in certain situations we may respond, you know, out of these stereotypes and and uh, rather than just responding to another person. Um, 
because we still have these images in our mind. They're so deeply ingrained in our culture that one can be an anti-racist and racist at the same time, in a, in a sense, or at least uh, have a residual um, racist consciousness carrying these stereotypes in our minds at the same time that 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 we um, we are strongly against racism. So I, I think it's understandable that Eleanor Roosevelt um, had that sort of double double uh, way of looking at things. How and when did Eleanor Roosevelt learn about the persecution of Jews in Germany? And how did she react? Well, she, um, she learned about it. There was quite a lot, you know, when, when Hitler came to power in 1933, which was the same uh, year that FDR came to power, Hitler came to power in January. FDR was inaugurated in March. The inaugurations at that time were in March, not January. Um, and um, Hitler began immediately to to uh, to exclude Jews from from office, from professions, and so forth. Um, and um, there was attention to it in the American papers, so she would have read it there. But she she learned about it in a more personal way uh, from um, James McDonald, who was uh, the head of the American Foreign Policy Association, a uh, very interesting and important person uh, in this period in relation to Jewish refugees. He, he, uh, he was fluent in Germany. He, he was tall, blonde. He was sort of the perfect Aryan type. And uh, he had uh, he had close uh, contacts in the German government and the foreign ministry, um, and he was he was trusted by the Germans. Um, and um, he was in Germany in in the spring of of nineteen thirty three. He actually met with Hitler. He um, raised the issue of the Jews. And um, Hitler told him that, uh, that we're gonna show the world, you know, how to solve the Jewish problem. And, um, and when James McDonald came back, he contacted Eleanor Roosevelt. As soon as he got back, uh, she was a friend. They, they knew each other through the Foreign Policy Association. And uh, she immediately invited him to the White House. Um, where she met with him, but she also arranged for McDonald to spend two hours with FDR uh, talking about uh, McDonald's impressions of, of what was going on in Germany and of Hitler himself. Um, so both, both FDR and Eleanor Roosevelt knew in a, in a very vivid way from personal witness um, what was going on in, in Germany and what direction that uh, the German government was likely to take. So um, she also learned her, her, her friend and mentor, Carrie Chapman Catt, who was uh, leader of the suffragette movement and later founder of the League of Women Voters, um, 
and founder of the Women's um, Organization for Peace and Freedom, which was a, a, a leading peace organization that had uh, close ties to peace organizations in Germany, France, England. Um, and uh, Carrie Chapman Catt um, formed an organization called the Pro Protest Committee of Non-Jewish Women Against the Persecution of Jews in Germany. <laughs> um, and um, she wanted, Kat's idea was she wanted the protest to come, to come from Christian women, not from, you know, so that the Germans couldn't say, well, it's just the Jews, you know, the international conspiracy of Jews that's protesting. It was the Christian women of America who were protesting. And they got, um, they drew up a petition that was signed by community leaders all over the country, um, protesting what was going on in Germany. Eleanor Roosevelt did not sign that petition or publicly support it. Um, but she, when Carrie Chapman Catt was, was given an award for her um, support of, of uh, Jewish-Christian relations, Eleanor Roosevelt helped present the award to her. Um, so it, it, it's one of the puzzling, uh, difficult issues that I dealt with in my research was that Eleanor Roosevelt didn't make any public statements or even uh, many references in her private correspondence about what was going on in Germany. And, uh, but it was clear that she was very aware of it and very concerned about it. Um, as she expressed to Eleanor Morgenthau, her friend, her close friend, um, and by our, her, um, her attention to the work that James McDonald was doing he became, um, James McDonald became the High Commissioner for Refugees from coming from Germany, uh, which was established by the League of Nations. And it was his job to try to deal with all the refugees who were fleeing from Germany, the Jewish refugees mainly, um, many of them to France. And um, and when he came back to the United States for visits, he would he would go to see Eleanor Roosevelt and she would arrange for him to meet with FDR. So she kept very close um, in, in very close contact with McDonald and with the frustration that he that he had in trying to to deal with the issue, because um, most countries, all countries except, well, with almost no exceptions, were were reluctant to take refugees in, um, particularly Jewish refugees. And um, so um, McDonald finally resigned from his post. He said, this is a political issue that has to be dealt with by governments. It's not an issue that a high commissioner for refugees can solve. Um, and um, he later became, McDonald later became the um, uh, 
chairman of the President's Advisory Committee on Political Refugees. That would have been after 1938. And so he, he at that point, he sort of resumed this partnership with Eleanor Roosevelt in, in dealing with um, refugee issues. Um, so she, she was very early on aware of the issue, concerned about the issue, um, but not expressing publicly a condemnation of what was going on. What were the key messages of Eleanor Roosevelt's book, This Troubled World? Well, that was a book she published in 1938, in January of 1938. So it was before, uh, it was before the Anschluss. Um, it was before Kristallnacht. Um, and um, it comes out of the... <laughs> She, she had formed a partnership with um, Clarence Pickett, who was the uh, Quaker leader of the American Friends Service Committee. He was a pacifist and um, he was a leader in the, in the peace movement in the United States. Um, you know, World War I had, had been extremely upsetting to Americans and, and Americans, didn't want to have, and, and you know, it was supposed to be a war to, uh, to save democracy, but it, it didn't turn out that way. So there was a feeling that it had been a horrible uh, war that didn't accomplish what it was supposed to accomplish. And um, so Eleanor Roosevelt and many other Americans were, were very, reluctant to become involved in European affairs. Um, so there were isolationists, and then there were pacifists, and there were people like Eleanor Roosevelt who were internationalists. So she believed that there should be um, international organizations, and uh, Charlie Catman Cat, her mentor, was, uh, was one of those people. And this group of women um, worked to, um, they wanted America to join the world court, which we hadn't done. Of course, we hadn't joined the League of Nations. Um, they believed in establishing international mechanisms for resolving conflicts. And um, so This Troubled World is a book about, um, you know, expresses Eleanor Roosevelt's views about conflict. She, she says very little about it, about the specific troubles of the world. Um, very little, uh, you know, just a very general references to what's going on. And her, her, uh, but her the solutions she presents are also fairly vague, but they are uh, to establish these international organizations, these international mechanisms for solving problems, which, um, you know, would include mediation, would include, uh, if necessary, an international police force. Um, that becomes very important in her thinking later on about uh, Palestine. Um, and, um, but she also says, 
it, things that Trump, this troubled world is, is a, um, it was well accepted and reviewed at the time. I think the mood in this country was, you know, isolationist, it was pacifist. So um, she also says in the book that she didn't think any, you know, international system to keep the peace would work unless there was a profound change in human nature, really, that, you know, people had to, there had to be interchange, which is a, a sort of Quaker idea that, that you had to have uh, only through interchange could peace come about. And um, it was, um, I think, uh, you know, in a, given, uh, you know, she talks about how nations have to be nice to each other. They have to understand that other um, nations have their own problems and we shouldn't be too critical. And so there's this um, sort of justification in the book for not being publicly critical of another country such as Germany. Um, it's a naive book given the circumstances, given particularly in retrospect, um, but it, it, it expresses not just her views, I think, but, but the views of a lot of people at the time. Um, and she, the events of 1938, I think, begin to shift her, her point of view. She, she wasn't a pacifist even then. And um, she was very close to Pickett in other ways, but um, she eventually comes to support the need for, uh, that FDR was pursuing of rearming the United States to prepare us for war if it came to us to be ready to defend ourselves uh, militarily. Um, and in that way, she, she parted from, from Clarence Pickett and um, she would not have written this troubled world in 1940. You know, the world had changed uh, a lot in those two years, um, you know, in shocking ways, so. How did her relationship and partnership with Clarence Pickett, the Quaker leader, form? Can you comment on her relationship with and perception of the American Friends Service Committee? Yeah, she, she learned about the Friends Service Committee uh, in 1933, too. In the fall of 1933, she, her friend Lorena Hickok, who was a, uh, a journalist, um, and also was traveling around and looking at uh, New Deal programs, how they were going, looking at conditions in various parts of the country. She called Eleanor Roosevelt's attention to what the, the American Friends Service Committee was doing in, in the coal, re coal mining regions of West Virginia. And um, Eleanor Roosevelt went there personally to visit and she, she toured the programs that the American Friends Service was running for these out-of-work miners. And um, she was inspired by the approach of the American Friends Service Committee to helping these displaced persons who were in many ways internal refugees. Um, and um, the Quakers, did not believe in 
charity and they believed in rehabilitation. They believed in, in helping people help themselves and in, in teaching them skills in finding ways for people to rebuild their lives and um, become self-sustaining. And that inspired Eleanor Roosevelt so much that she partnered with Clarence Pickett in establishing a, um, a new village called Arthurdale in West Virginia for displaced coal miners, where each family was given a plot of land, uh, enough so they could have a, uh, some chickens, have a vegetable garden, could be, you know, grow some of their own food. And also the idea was to bring in, in some industry so there'd be jobs for the people. Um, and she put a lot of energy into that community, which was uh, part of a whole um, set of such communities, which FDR was also very interested in these, these new towns, um, these what they called homestead, um, homesteads that, um, around the country. And he, he supported the program too. Um, so, that's how she became interested in, in the American Friends Service Committee. She, um, she gave uh, her, the money that she made from her, her broadcasts uh, to the American Friends Service Committee to sustain its programs. Um, she also, when she wanted to help someone individually, she, she would contact Clarence Pickett's office and they would uh, they would send money from her, the fund that she'd established with them to, to help someone. Um, but the other thing the American Friends Service Committee was doing at this time was working in Germany to, um, to help Jewish refugees get visas to support them when they were out of work um, after they'd been thrown out of jobs. Um, and the Quakers were there because after World War I, there was a, um, a boycott um, of Germany. The, they were um, like a blockade. The food could not go into Germany. Between the time of the armistice and the time of the, um, of the peace settlement, the Versailles Treaty, uh, Many Germans died of starvation because they uh, weren't allowed, the Germans weren't allowed to import food. And the Quakers set up a relief program in Germany uh, to help alleviate the situation. It wasn't a large operation, but it was, it was effective and it was very much appreciated by the Germans. And the Quakers remained there. Uh, and when uh, the Jews began to be persecuted, uh, the Quakers became um, really agents for helping them get visas and, and helping support them. Um, so Eleanor Roosevelt learned about that from, from Pickett. She knew that was going on and some of her, the funds she was giving them went to support those programs. They had offices in Berlin and in uh, Vienna, um, 
in Paris for refugees who, who made it to Paris and uh, they, um, Pickett went over to visit twice and, and, and inspect the programs uh, and reported back Per, in, in personal letters that he sent only to to close uh, friends like Eleanor, uh, reporting on the, on, on conditions um, in Germany. So that was another way that she learned, you know, firsthand what was going on, but also indirectly um, was helping an organization. She was directly helping an organization that was um, working to to help Jews escape. What were Eleanor Roosevelt's views on religion? How did this shape her concern for social problems and her attitude toward the Jews? Well, she was, she was brought up in a kind of dour <laughs> religious background by, by her, her grandmother. And um, she rebelled against that. She, she was sent to a, um, a school in England uh, called Allenswood, which was run by a French woman named Marie Souvestre. And Marie Souvestre was not religious, but she believed that the girls in her school, many of whom were British, but there were also women from France and, and Germany. And um, she believed they should become aware of social problems. And so she, she encouraged uh, social activism. Eleanor didn't shed her religious background. She continued to to love hymn singing and that sort of thing. But she she wasn't interested in theology. She she didn't care for the church as an institution. She believed that Christianity should be active. That to be a Christian meant to to do good in the world. To to um, find to, to learn about problems, to learn about conditions that needed to be changed, and then to act to change them. And this was this idea of an active Christianity that that um, what was not important was whether you went to church, wasn't important what theology you believed in, what was important whether was whether you loved your neighbor as thyself and, and acted on that. And that's what Clarence Pickett and the Quakers believed. That's what the American Service Committee was set up to do. And, um, and that's what Eleanor Roosevelt did. Um, so it, it was a kind of religious view that, um, that sort of broke down barriers between religions that it didn't, to Eleanor Roosevelt, it didn't matter that the Jews didn't believe in Jesus Christ. You know, I mean, she was, Eleanor was a Christian. She believed in Christianity, but that wasn't what was important. What was important was, was whether people, whether they were Jews or Catholics or Protestants, whether they actually lived their religion, whether they lived it in their daily life and, um, and acted to change conditions which which should not be tolerated. And um, so it was, um, I think that's one of the reasons that she, well, she, she was involved, in, as I said, in the National uh, Conference of Christians and Jews, which was 
also an organization, you know, aimed at breaking down barriers between the religions and and finding finding common common grounds. That um, you know, she said at one point, Eleanor Roosevelt said at one point that that we um, it's wonderful that we can we can each Protestants, Christians, and Jews have our own beliefs, and at the same time. Uh, be champions of democracy, which makes it possible, which allows us to have our differences. Um, so that was where she was coming from religiously. It was, um, she really saw democracy as, as a kind of, um, almost like a religion, <laughs> you know, but it was a religion that was non-denominational, so to speak. It was a religion which allowed differences, uh, but united people in in trying to make the world better. What was the relationship between the Nazi persecution of the Jews and the fight for a federal anti-lynching law? What interconnections did Eleanor Roosevelt perceive? Well, lynching, it's hard for us to imagine today how prevalent, how unrestrained uh, lynching was in the early, particularly in the early 30s. And these lynchings were, um, some of them were publicized, they were advertised. And, you know, crowds of people, people would bring their children to these lynchings. I mean, they were, they were unbelievably cruel and, um, and used as a way of, you know, as intimidating and keep, keeping African-Americans down and, and um, in their place. And, um, and they were, uh, it, it was hard to be, it was hypocr- it seemed hypocritical to Eleanor Roosevelt and others to be critical of Germany, of what was Germany was doing to the Jews when we were being so outrageously cruel to our own minority population. Um, and the German German propaganda made a lot of this. You know, they would publish pictures of uh, uh, of these lynchings in the German papers and say, you know, how can you how can you be criticizing us when this is going on in your country? So um, there were a lot of people who felt that um, not only because it was wrong, but because it was uh, inconsistent with our attitude toward the Nazi persecution of the Jews, that something had to be done about, about lynching. So there was an effort to pass an anti-lynching, federal anti-lynching bill. Uh, it actually had the votes in the Senate if it could have been brought up for a vote. But because of the filibuster, and uh, it could not be brought to a vote. And uh, the Southern our congressmen and senators uh, controlled a lot of the um, congressional committees, which were um, which were considering New Deal legislation. So that FDR, although he uh, he was against lynching and you know supported um, in theory the uh, anti-lynching law, he didn't feel that he could publicly support it. Um, 
or put pressure on the Southern senators and congressmen to pass the legislation because he was afraid that he would then not be able to get his like his social security bill, 1935 social security bill through to the Congress. Um, and that was in fact true um, that the Southerners were filibustering the, the um, anti-lynching bill, which was preventing the uh, social security bill from getting passed. And so the uh, sponsors of the bill withdrew it uh, so that the, the New Deal legislation could go ahead. Um, so FDR was in a difficult position. Um, Eleanor Roosevelt, on the other hand, she didn't feel constrained <laughs> um, and you know, campaigned in favor of, of the anti-lynching bill, pressured her husband about it, about passing it, became a liaison between uh, Walter White, who was the head of the NAACP, and her husband helped you know arrange meetings or passed on information, and um, but the bill uh, was put forward every year, but it didn't it, it didn't get anywhere because of Southern opposition and because FDR didn't feel he could. I'm not sure he could have even succeeded in getting it through if he'd come out publicly for it. Um, but in any case, he he felt it wasn't politically possible to take that position. Um, so it was one of the great disappointments of Eleanor Roosevelt at the time that, that this couldn't be done because she knew how, um, what a terrible um, thing it was and right in this country and that to, to to be a stronger on the uh, on the international level and to be an example to the world. I mean, the American democracy. We were supposed to be an example to the world. Well, not a very good example when we had were tolerating lynching. Um, didn't have a federal law outlawing it. So, how did Eleanor Roosevelt and her friends and allies respond to Kristallnacht? Well, it's, this is another issue that was difficult during my research is that, that Eleanor Roosevelt did not speak out the way one wished she would have uh, against um, Nazi uh, behavior. And um, Kristallnacht was another example of that. She, she wrote a My Day column about it number of days after it took place. Um, but her way of talking about it was was very low key, very you know indirect. She didn't um, and and why was that? Well it was because it, it was not the policy of of the of the Roosevelt administration to condemn Germany, the idea um, in most cases, although in this case at Kristallnacht, we did protest. It was really the first time that the Roosevelt administration protested. We withdrew our ambassador to Germany. We were the only nation that did that. Um, and FDR did publicly condemn it 
Um, and Eleanor was glad that he did. You know, she she told a friend how glad she was that we had recalled our ambassador and that he'd spoken out about it. But she didn't. Uh, she was careful not to do anything. Uh, she she you know she disagreed with her husband on certain things, like like on on the lynching bill. She she was able to take her own position on it to speak out against it while FDR remained silent. Um, and Kristallnacht, it was the reverse. You know, he spoke out about it. And she she really didn't accept it in a rather weak way. And um, she didn't, particularly in international relations, she kept a low profile. She didn't want to undermine uh, what FDR was trying to do. And um, I think that was part of it. But I also think that particularly at that time, she she shared the uh, the attitude of the Quakers. And the, the Quakers, uh, they were obviously against what was going on in Germany, but their way of their way of responding to it was not to condemn Germany, to uh, make statements uh, that about how they felt about what was going on. They acted, you know, quietly. They had, as I said, they had. Um, a presence in Berlin and Vienna, uh, and they worked to help Jews leave. They didn't make a big fuss about it. They didn't advertise what they were doing. They just did it. And uh, I think that was Eleanor Roosevelt's attitude, that it was best to, uh, it might be uh, satisfying in some way to let off steam and just to condemn Germany, but um, I think she felt, as as um, as Clarence Pickett did, that it might make things worse to do that. Um, and there was actually reason to think that. There's an interesting book that came out recently a after my book was published, a, a book by Richard Brightman, who's a, a professor at American University, who's an expert on American refugee policy. He wrote a book about um, our consul uh in Berlin, he was the consul there from 1929 to 1939. Um, and his name was Geist. And he, um, he was very sympathetic to the Jews. Uh, he did what he could to help them get visas and, and to get out of Germany. He was frustrated by, by the State Department's um, lack of responsiveness um, and obstruction of visas. Um, but he wrote back to the State Department um, advising that they do not condemn, uh, publicly condemn uh, the Nazi policy toward the Jews. He said, if you do that, um, Germany is likely to break off relations diplomatic relations, which means that we will no longer have consulates in Germany, which means I cannot do my work. We will not be able to help people get visas. Um, so, you know, that, that helped me understand better, you know, why there was this unwillingness to speak out at the time, both by Eleanor Roosevelt, by 
by uh, by by FDR by the State Department. Um, you know, it's possible to argue that that was the wrong policy, but it, it, what Geist was saying makes a lot of makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think it's quite possible that would have happened, uh, and of course, eventually it did happen. Um, you know, when we entered the war, um, that made it when we don't get consulates, it became a lot harder to to help people. Um, so. Um, yeah. How did Eleanor Roosevelt and her friends respond to the fall of France in the spring of 1940? They had been working um, after um, after the after Kristallnacht. Uh, she and her friends had um, mainly, mainly Justine Polier, her close friend I mentioned before. Uh, led an effort to uh, to pass a bill called it became known as they they initiated the bill called the Wagner Rogers bill, which is to um, to bring twenty thousand German children, most of whom would would be Jewish, but not all of them. It wasn't uh, twenty thousand German children to the United States, ten thousand a year above the quota, uh, above the immigration quotas, um, and. This bill, um, again, FDR didn't feel he could publicly support it. Eleanor Roosevelt um, indicated her support for it. Uh, she encouraged her friends, FDR encouraged her friends to, to pursue it, but it, 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 they couldn't get it through Congress. There was so much opposition to, to immigration, to, there was so much anti-Semitism. Um, that even this gesture, which would have been, you know, would have been a gesture, it would have, these were, were uh, these were children. They, they would not have been competing for jobs during the depression. Um, and so there were labor organizations which supported the bill, um, which were generally against immigration because of employment, because of unemployment, but they didn't pass. So, so this group that had worked on that on the um, on the bill, the Wagner Rogers bill, continued to try to find ways to bring um, refugees to this country. And so, uh, in the spring of um, of nineteen forty, after the fall of France, they formed the United States Committee for the Care of European Children, and. It, its initial effort was to bring British children to the United States during the summer of 1940 to protect them from the bombing of, uh, of London and other cities in Germany and in, in England um, by the Nazis. Um, and uh, later in the fall, um, that effort eventually came to an end because the German submarines were sinking ships, um, including ships that had children on them. So the British decided they, they didn't want to risk sending children across the Atlantic. Um, but in the fall of um, 1940, um, the US Committee for the Care of European Children began trying to get children out of un unoccupied France, the southern part of France, um, and um, had some success doing that. Um, 
but the State Department made it very difficult uh, to do it. And uh, so Eleanor fought very hard with the State Department. She pressured her husband um, to make the, allow, for example, um, you know, at that time, you, in order to, to get a visa, you had to have um, an affidavit from some individual in the United States who was, it had to be an individual, it couldn't be an organization, to be an individual who guaranteed uh, the person's support. So if um, the person wasn't able to get a job, that this person would support them. Um, but the children, it was hard to find, it was complicated to find individual sponsors for everybody so that the U US Committee for the Care of European Children wanted to be able to sponsor them as an organization and you know, make an exception to the usual rules, which they were allowed to do a couple of times, a few times. Um, the, the other way in which Eleanor Roosevelt and her friends responded was through the Emergency Rescue Committee, which was founded by a different group of people. Um, and um, its aim was to bring uh, opponents of Nazism who were hiding in unoccupied France out of the country. These were people who had been um, politicians, you know, political opponents of the Nazis in Germany and Austria and Italy and um, or were artists and intellectuals who were anti-Nazi. Um, and that was the Emergency Rescue Committee. Um, and Eleanor Roosevelt became active with that organization too. And she served with both these organizations, the US Committee for the Care of European Children and the Emergency Rescue Committee. She became the liaison between those groups and her husband, but more directly between those groups and the State Department. And um, she helped the Emergency Rescue Committee get started. They, they, they realized they had to send somebody to Marseille who would be able to contact these people who were in hiding, uh, get them American visas, get them exit visas from France, get them transit visas through Spain and Portugal. It's very complicated getting them out. And um, so the person that they, they sent was a man named Varian Fry, and Eleanor Roosevelt helped him get a passport and uh, to, go to, to go to France. And she encouraged him and he kept in touch with her um, and let, let her know the difficulties he was having with the American consulate there in Marseille. Um, so Eleanor Roosevelt had two uh, people she dealt with in the State Department, two principal people. One was Breckenridge Long, who was Assistant Secretary of State in charge of, who oversaw the visa division. And he was uh, an anti-Semite. 
he was uh, anti-immigration. He was excessively fearful that um, subversives, uh, spies would would be sent uh, you know, among the refugees, uh, specifically to to subvert and spy on the United States, uh, either by sent by either Nazi Germany or by by communist uh, by the Soviet Union. Um, was there was as much fear of communism as there was of Nazism in the United States, and um, so he he did. Bergers Log did everything he could to to obstruct uh, the visa process. Um, and when Eleanor Roosevelt complained about it, when she supported uh, James McDonald, whom I, I mentioned before, uh, when he became uh, chairman of the president's advisory committee on the uh, political refugees, he, he met with FDR and he met with people in the State Department to try to get them to recognize that this process was being obstructed. And um, Eleanor Roosevelt supported that effort um, strongly and um, she urged uh, urged FDR, I think it's evident, not um, indirectly evident that she urged FDR to get rid of Breckenridge Long, um, but he didn't. Um, Breckenridge Long received a letter from um, our ambassador in the Soviet Union um, saying that, that the people who were being recommended uh, to be rescued were some of them were were uh, subversives and that the, the Soviet Union and, and Germany were seeding the refugees with these so this, this Ambassador Steinhardt's letter to the State Department uh, was very uh, a very strong weapon you'd say that that Breckenridge Long used to persuade FDR that the process, the visa process was in fact necessary, that this very long complicated process of examining each case um, was necessary in order to protect the nation from, from subversives. Um, Eleanor Roosevelt and Clarence Pickett and her allies did not agree with that and tried to persuade FDR otherwise, but, but we're not, were not successful. So her, her efforts on behalf of refugees were, um, were very strong, but uh, and in some cases she was able to help in individual cases, mainly because of Sumner Wells, um, who was uh, undersecretary of state um, and sympathetic. Everybody, um, Jews, Jewish leaders, um, McDonald, Eleanor Roosevelt, everybody felt that Sumner Wells was sympathetic to refugees 
and sympathetic to Jewish refugees. Um, and Eleanor Roosevelt would, she bombarded him with, with cases. You know, she would hear about somebody who was having difficulty getting a visa, who had been denied a visa. She would contact Sumner Wells and, and ask him to intervene. Um, Wells was an old friend of both Eleanor and FDR. Um, he had roomed with um, Eleanor's brother Hall at Groton. And um, so they had a very good relationship. But Sumner Wells was one of the few people who addressed her Eleanor in, in letters. And um, so she could be very frank with him and they, they trusted each other. But, but he was... Uh, he was a strange figure because he, although he was sympathetic, he, he kept defending the visa process and he didn't seem to understand uh, that Breckenridge Long was deliberately obstructing the process. Um, so that made it difficult uh, for Eleanor to persuade FDR that that was going on since Sumner Wells was was uh, seemed to be blind to to it. How did Eleanor Roosevelt respond to the news in late 1942 that the Nazis had established camps for the extermination of the Jews? Well, she she initially um, adopted the the, the administration the Roosevelt administrations. Um, response to that was uh, initially was to say the, the, the way to save the Jews is to win the war. Everything has to go into winning the war. And there's nothing we can do, nothing significant we can do until the war is won. And the, fast, well, the faster we win it, you know, the, the more likely we are to save some of the Jews. Um, and Eleanor echoed that um, attitude um, until um, Peter Bergson, who was um, uh, the leader of uh, the committee to save the Jews of Europe, emergency committee to save the Jews of Europe. Um, his organization was not, uh, was distrusted by the leading Jewish organizations, such as the American Jewish Congress, which was headed by Rabbi Stephen Weiss um, and the American Jewish Committee, um, they didn't like Bergson's tactics, which were very confrontational. He, they took out uh, full-page ads in the papers, uh, attacking the administration for doing nothing to rescue Jews. Um, and um, the leaders of the other Jewish organizations felt that this, this tactic would only um, make it more difficult to persuade the administration to do something. Um, and, and Bergson came to... to um, to see Eleanor Roosevelt at least twice, maybe three times. And after one of these meetings, uh, she said, I don't know what can be done to rescue the Jews. Um, I don't know how it could be done, 
but it is morally imperative that's some, that when some wrong is being done, that we should respond to it. So she, she didn't have any proposals for what could be done, but she believed this, that it was morally imperative that the United States act to save the Jews. And um, out of that period of you know, pressure on the, uh, the administration, there was growing pressure within the administration too to do something. Uh, Henry Morgenthau had asked several of his staff members to investigate uh, the State Department's behavior. You know, what was the State Department doing uh, to obstruct rescue, to obstruct funds that might go to, to help rescue Jews. Um, and his, um, these staff members wrote a report um, on, you know, American acquiescence in the extermination of the Jews. And Morgenthau took that to FDR and uh, proposed that as a, an independent uh, rescue agency be established, which was one of the, one of the um, demands, the principal demand of, the, of Bergson's group. And um, this was in uh, January of 1944 and um, FDR immediately accepted that proposal. And even though he, he still didn't believe, he, he indicated according to the Morgenthau diaries that FDR didn't believe that Breckenridge Long was actually obstructing the process, but he agreed that something should be done and he agreed to establish what became the War Refugee Board, uh, which is generally credited with saving perhaps 200,000 Jews. Um, the problem was that it was set up too late. Um, it was underfunded and it, it was completely dependent on other government agencies in order to get anything done, you know, like on like the military. So it would have to go to to another agency and ask them to 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 do something. So it it was um, it did a remarkable job considering how little support it got. Um, and um, so Eleanor certainly was pleased when that was established and when something was being done. Um, but again, you know, as in the 30s, she didn't, she didn't speak out herself um, publicly on the, on, the, on the issue, except in a fairly um, mild way. I mean, she said this, what she said about the moral imperative, she said one of her My Day columns. So she did, she did state her position publicly. How did the death of Franklin Roosevelt impact Eleanor personally and psychologically? Well, it, it um, initially she she seemed to think that she, the sort of the story of her public life was over, but uh, 
she soon changed that view and she, uh, particularly after Truman appointed her to the first American delegation to the United Nations. Um, and she was asked when she went to the first meeting, which was in London, um, on the boat, she was asked how she felt. And she said, I, I feel free. You know, she felt free to, to speak her own mind in a way she didn't before. She was free of the constraints. She was under, under FDR uh, when FDR was president when he was alive. Um, even though, I mean, he did give her a lot of leeway and, uh, to disagree publicly. And, and you know, as, as, uh, as I said, like on the issue of lynching, um, and, and the issue of African-Americans, she, she was um, in the civil rights of, of African-Americans, like in housing, she, he allowed her to be uh, more in disagreement than, than one can imagine, you know, a first lady today being allowed to, to do. But, but she was constrained and, and um, particularly in the area of foreign affairs. And, so she was, uh, she was concerned that she wasn't, you know, wasn't prepared for this role. And she worked very hard to, to learn it, this role as a diplomat, um, a member of the delegation. She studied all the material she was given, the, the background papers, briefing papers, and, um, the, the other members of the delegation, it was a very high power delegation, which had um, you know, John Foster Dulles was on it. It was, it was a um, bipartisan delegation. And the other delegates who were all men, you know, viewed her appointment as, um, as um, a political ploy on Truman's part to capitalize on her popularity and FDR's popularity. Um, but she went on to uh, the first issue that came before the United Nations in London at its first meeting was refugees. And she'd been appointed to the third committee, which dealt with refugees and ended up debating uh, Andrei Vashinsky, the Russian delegate, uh, on the issue of whether um, the refugees in the DP camps in Germany, 200,000 of whom were, were Jews who'd survived, uh, whether they should be forced to return to the countries of origin, which the Soviet Union argued they should do, or whether they should be allowed to settle elsewhere if they wished to, which is what the Western allies believed. Um, and she won that debate, she won that argument, and. Um, uh, people like Dulles um, came to admire her, admire her, her abilities. Um, so um, that's how she emerged as a, not just a national leader, but an international leader. How did Eleanor's views about the future of Palestine evolve? Well, she, she, um, she was not a Zionist. Most of her Jewish friends were not Zionists. Justine Polier was, but most of the friends, like Alan Morgenthau, were not Zionists. Um, she wasn't. Um, she she didn't believe in the establishment of a Jewish state until 1947. Um, she felt that the British should allow 
immigration into Palestine, that that was uh, particularly for the, you know, for the Jews who'd survived the Holocaust, um, the British were refusing to do that. Um, but when, uh, when the United Nations Committee that had been formed to deal with the future of Palestine proposed or recommended that Palestine be divided into a Jewish and an Arab state, into two states, uh, she strongly supported that partition plan. She became its most passionate advocate in, in the um, administration. Um, the Jews accepted that plan, but the Arabs resisted it and began to attack the Jewish settlements. And the United States, by January of 1948, started to, uh, to back off from implementing the partition plan, proposed that a, a UN trusteeship be established after the British mandate ended in May of 1948. And Eleanor Roosevelt was outraged. Uh, that's what I was talking about at the beginning. This, this is where my book you know, began where I got interested in these issues was was through this. Um, so um, I won't repeat what I said there. Um, but the other um, other issue was was she didn't believe that the partition plan was was a, was the ideal solution. Uh, I mean, she would have preferred a binational state, which some Jewish leaders also favored, um, including the American Zionist, uh, no, the American Jewish Council um, and um, Judah Magnus, who was head of the Hebrew University, even, even Henrietta Zold, uh, she died before 1948, but um, even Henry, Henrietta Zold uh, did not, you know, believed there should be a binational state in which all citizens had equal rights. Um, and that's what Eleanor Roosevelt believed. That, that was what, I mean, that's what she had been fighting for in the United States was, a, a, you know, a nation where, an inclusive nation where, where everybody had equal rights. And so the idea of a, um, of a Jewish state, um, was not something she would ordinarily have supported, but she felt that under the circumstances that uh, it was the only viable solution um, since there were, um, the two sides were so passionately opposed to each other and the, the Arabs would not accept. And her, her idea was that if, if there were two states, if there was an Arab and an Israeli state, um, the original plan called for a kind of, you know, economic union between these two states. Um, and her idea was that if, if, if each state could be established, you know, side by side, they could gradually work out their differences and, and become, you know, perhaps more united. Perhaps it would have been in a, in a kind of federation like uh, Switzerland or uh, but of course, since the Arabs did not accept the partition that 
that wasn't wasn't possible. Um, Can you comment on Eleanor's role in the development of the UN Declaration, the Universal Declaration on Human Rights? Yeah, um, she was she was chairman of that committee, and uh, many people believe that the Universal Declaration of Human Rights would not have been possible without her chairmanship. She was a very skillful chairman, and um, the State Department was not entirely on board. They, the State Department did, you know, they supported a political uh, declaration of rights, but not, they didn't believe that social and economic rights should be included in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. But Eleanor believed in that. She and FDR had come to the conclusion that, you know, things like healthcare were human rights. And, um, Education was a human right. Um, and of course, the, 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 the communist countries strongly believed in those as, as rights. Um, and many of the developing countries also believe those rights should be included. So Eleanor you know, managed to persuade the State Department that those rights needed to be included if they were to you know, find common ground among the members of the committee. Um, she was not a, um, you know, there were some very smart legal minds on the committee. She, she did not, she, she hadn't even graduated from college. She didn't go to college. Um, but she was, one of her chief contributions to the declaration was that she believed it should be written in a language that anyone could understand. It shouldn't be lit, written in legal jargon. And so she would continually, you know, question language that she felt was not, would not be easily understandable by the ordinary person. Um, one of the results of, in terms of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, um, one of the, um, the issues around the declaration was that the Arabs felt that their human rights had been violated and um, felt that Eleanor Roosevelt was hypocritical in supporting uh, the Jews and supporting Israel when their rights had been, um, been violated. How did Eleanor Roosevelt become involved in the work of Hadassah and Youth Aliyah? Yeah, um, you know, Eleanor Roosevelt believed that, that uh, she, she'd become interested in, in the, uh, the Jewish settlements in Palestine back in the 1930s through her uh, Jewish friends, particularly Eleanor Morgenthau and um, Rose Schneiderman um, and um, Alan Morgenthau encouraged her interest in Hadassah. Um, and Hadassah had been founded by Henrietta Zold, um, daughter of a Baltimore rabbi uh, who had um, formed a, 
a kind of a settlement house in Baltimore for Russian Jewish immigrants, uh, become a Zionist, gone to Israel, came back and, and established Hadassah in 1912. And one of Hadassah's first um, missions was to send nurses to Palestine. And so that organization developed um, and in the 1930s, um, it became the main sponsor of, of Youth Aliyah, which was an organization that, that brought Jewish children to Palestine and um, trained them to become citizens of, of, uh, of the country and uh, trained them in agriculture and trades, the particular professions that were needed to, to create the settlements in the kibbutzim, particularly in Palestine. And um, Elder Morgenthau put Eleanor in touch with Hadassah. Um, Eleanor spoke to, to Hadassah groups beginning in 1934. Um, and uh, later on, she learned about uh, a, a youth village in Palestine that was that was actually run by the children themselves with you know with the advice of of, um, of their elders. But uh, she wrote about it in her column. Um, and in 1940, she was invited um, to become um, head of an advisory committee to Youth Aliyah. Um, Elder, Elder Morgenthau arranged that connection, and so she she did. She didn't. She didn't. Uh, she wasn't um, very active. She mainly lent her name to the organization, but that was very valuable to them. Um, but then, in 1952, uh, Moshe Cole, who was by then the head of Youth Aliyah, invited her to become world patron of Youth Aliyah, which she did. Um, and she became a, uh, she, she visited Israel four times in that capacity, beginning in 1952. She became a, a, a major fundraiser for Hadassah and um, for, which was the financial sponsor of Youth Aliyah, but also the um, builder of medical facilities, first in Palestine and then and then in Israel. Um, and so when, when Eleanor went to Israel, uh, she visited the Youth Aliyah training camps, youth villages, um, the Adasa medical facilities, um, and kibbutzim. Um, and in many ways she found in Israel she, she developed a very close relationship with, with the country and with its leaders, with, with Ben-Gurion, with Golda Meir, um, with, um, with other people. And um, she became close to it partly because it, it, it fulfilled some of her most deeply held beliefs, things that she'd worked for in the 30s were being fulfilled, you know, on a kind of national scale in, in, uh, in Israel. And 
things like public health, um, uh, the uh, cooperative communities. You know, Arthur Dale was very much in, in the United States, the community of Arthur Dale, which she helped establish in West Virginia for out of work coal miners. That was a kind of uh, exception in America. You know, it didn't, it didn't remain a cooperative community very long. And, um, but in Israel, the kibbutzim were sort of the building blocks of, of the nation and initially. And uh, so she was very excited about the, the, these cooperative communities is where, in a country where they were much more important than they'd been in the United States, much more central to the culture. And um, she, uh, she also was fascinated by the way Youth Aliyah um, integrated children into the new country. Um, the children came from different cultures. You know, originally most of them were from Germany and Poland, uh, but later they came from Morocco, from Yemen, um, and um, they um, they had to Israel had to rapidly turn them into into citizens. They they had to learn Hebrew. They had to learn skills, agricultural skills or trade skills. Um, and um, she was fascinated by the, the ways, the effective ways that, that, that Israel developed to, to educate these children and to uh, encourage them to become good citizens. Um, so she saw you know, Israel as a participatory democracy, the kind of democracy that she she admired. Um, it was an exciting, exciting place to be. How did Eleanor Roosevelt's visit to Israel in 1952 come about? Where specifically did she visit within Israel? Why was her hmm. visit noteworthy and symbolic? And what were her perceptions of Israeli life? She went to the first time she went to Israel. She she actually visited the Arab countries first. She went to uh, Lebanon, Syria, and Jordan, and entered Israel um, through the Mandelbaum Gate in in Jerusalem. And um, she went to the Arab countries. Uh, well, partly because this was this trip was part of a larger trip that involved. After she left the Middle East, she went to Pakistan and India. And she wanted to see uh, developing countries. And um, she wrote a book about it afterwards called India and the Awakening East, in which recounted her visits to all of these countries. Um, she went partly because Charles Malik, who was a colleague, uh, a Lebanese Christian Arab colleague on the Human Rights Commission, um, urged her to go and uh, arranged for her to meet various leaders in Lebanon. So she went to Lebanon. She, she um, met with Arab leaders. Um, she met with um, Stephen Penrose, uh, who is the president of American University in Beirut. And he brought together 
bunch of Arab educators and, and leaders to, to talk to her about, about the Middle East situation. And so she, she became very familiar with the Arab point of view. Um, the trip didn't change her attitude to, to the political situation, but um, it did deepen her knowledge of uh, the Middle East. She, she visited the, the Arab refugee camps, the Palestinian Arab refugee camps in, in Lebanon and Syria and Jordan. And, um, and then entered Israel. And she, she, in writing about it, she, she felt that the, although the Arabs knew that changes had to come about, and they felt some need for development that they didn't have, um, they lacked some of the elements that were needed in order for them to be successful at that. Um, and when she got to, to, to Israel, she found what might be described as, as the, the American can-do attitude, you know, that the, the Jews in Israel were, were excited about having their own country. They were energized. They were confident. They felt they could do anything. Um, they were building new settlements. They were building hospitals and schools and um, um and they had a, uh, and it, they were also a democracy um, at the same time. And uh, so she felt that there was, you know, this very sharp contrast between the two, the two, uh, between the Israel and the surrounding Arab countries. Um, she she didn't she didn't know any Arabs. Um, you know, in, in America, she she knew a lot of Jew, American Jews. Um, as I say, there were there were some Arabs at the UN that she knew superficially, but um, she really had a, an Orientalist perspective. What Edward Said calls an Oriental Orientalist perspective on the Middle East, and and um, saw the Arabs as a kind of backward people, um, and. Um, who needed, you know, Western needed to adopt Western ways, uh, but we're we're slower, reluctant to do so. As we bring our dialogue today to a close, what are you working on next as your subsequent project? Well, actually, something quite different. I um, when I was in my early twenties, I, I wrote my senior. Uh, senior thesis at Harvard on, on Henry Thoreau uh, and particularly on his, um, the idea of wildness and his um, essay on, on Katahdin, um, the highest mountain in Maine. And um, I also climbed Katahdin in my early 20s with a friend and it made an enormous impression on me. Um, a beautiful, beautiful place. So I, um, I was last year, which was my 80th year, I decided what I wanted to do to sort of mark this milestone was to, to return to Katahdin and climb it. And uh, 
my two sons came with me and uh, I hired a guide because I didn't, I, I knew I couldn't carry a full pack at my age. Um, and so um, the other guys carried the heavy weight and I had a day pack and um, the guide made all the arrangements. And it was a wonderful trip. It was a wonderful trip. But I, I got very interested in, in the kind of nature that you encounter there. Um, it's sort of the border between the animate and the inanimate. And so I'm now doing research on, on Thoreau and I'm, um, I'm not sure quite where it's going. It may, may be a more personal kind of essay. Uh, it's probably be an essay rather than a book. Um, but um, I'm, I'm reading books about lichen and mosses and uh, <laughs> the way, you know, the way rock is broken down and things like that. And, uh, um, and books about Thoreau. And so, um, yeah, so I'm not sure where it's going, but th that's what I'm working on. Thank you. I wish you only the best of luck with it. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'm tremendously grateful for all the erudition you invested in this book and for all the sacrifice and self-abnegation that went into bringing it to fruition for the benefit of all of us. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, I wish you luck as well. Absolutely. Future uh, work. Thank you. I'm humbled and grateful to our listeners. Uh, I'm your host on the New Books Network, Ari Barbalat. I've been in dialogue today with Professor John Sears. He has served as the executive director of the Roosevelt Institute in Hyde Park, New York, and associate editor for the Eleanor Roosevelt Papers Project at Washington at, at George Washington University. He has taught at Tufts, Boston University, and Vassar College. Today, we have been discussing his new book, Refuge Must Be Given, Eleanor Roosevelt, The Jewish Plight and the Founding of Israel, published in West Lafayette, Indiana by Purdue University Press 2021. Thank you.